G'day everyone, this is Rita Join, and welcome to the Unbox Your Give podcast, how to turn a passion into a profession. My guest today is someone that if you've ever had the inkling to start something of your own, do your own thing, she's the, the perfect person to give you the ins and outs because at the age of 22, she started in 2008, she co-founded her own company. She's the CEO and co-founder of the number one fastest growing independent Australian book publisher, Pantera Press. She is 2019 Sydney Young Entrepreneur of the Year for Media and PR, named one of Australia's 100 Most Influential Women by Westpac and the Australian Financial Review for integrity for combining both business and social for good. She's a Harvard Business School alumna and sits on a number of industry committees and boards, including Writing New South Wales, which she's the director of, and Pantera Press Foundation. She's also chosen as one of the top 20 young leaders in philanthropy and in studying and philanthropy study tours in the USA, UK and EU. Ali Green, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And wasn't that a bit of a mouthful to say? Well, you're pretty much of a high achiever. I mean, you're going great guns. I mean, there's a lot there. But what I want to do, because to just create some connection with our audience, because you're so, you're, you're really high up there. Can you tell us about a failure, a failure that you can share that um, really shaped you? Yeah, I mean, I think to start with, failure is actually really important. Um, and in business, it's, it's often hard to think about those specific moments because they really shape what you do next. And to get to where I am right now has really been 12 solid years of failing, learning, picking up and growing um, and making those changes. And so, you know, that failure piece, I guess, is just so important to everything that we do. Um, but, you know, one of the questions I get asked a lot is sort of, you know, what my passion was early on. How did I get into publishing to start with in this assumption that I was very successful as like a, a young person and knew exactly what I wanted to do when in fact, you know, that it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, in high school, English was my worst subject by far. Uh, my English teacher had me for year 11 and year 12. And I just remember this moment um, at the start of year 12, walking into the classroom and my teacher looking at me and saying, oh no, not you again. And, you know, it's, it's kind of funny to hear now, but at the time it was this devastating thing. And so at no point in my youth did I ever think that, you know, running my own company was an option. I certainly never thought that I would be in a business that had anything to do with literacy. Um, and, you know, it was a real uh, journey of working out what did excite me um, and letting that excitement drive what I actually wanted to do. So how did you find out what drives you? Yeah, it's a great question. So it, it was a confluence of many different elements. Uh, but in the mid, I guess the early 2000s, um, I had done a psychology degree as my undergraduate. Um, and I did that because I thought I was interested in psychology, but realized quickly that actually it was sort of the business people element that excited me more than uh, the sitting on the couch talking through problems, which I originally thought you know, um, looked fun on TV. Um, <laughs> and I realized that I prefer talking um, than listening. No, <laughs> that's not true. Uh, 
<laughs> and so I, um, I started doing uh, a master's of commerce, basically straight after I finished, because I really thought I need to find another general degree that is useful and applicable in all areas, but might help me discover what it is that excites me. Um, and as part of doing that degree, we really had to do uh, many projects around business strategy, identifying voids in different industries. And so that was kind of a key piece that was always floating in my mind, this being aware of where there are voids and wondering why. Um, and then during the summer holidays, uh, when I was finishing that degree up, I was just invited by chance to an Indigenous community in far north Queensland. And I thought that this would be just a really interesting trip. I think it was only a four day trip. And when I got there, uh, I was shocked because I came across these beautiful young boys. There were three of them. Um, I, I mean, I came across many people, but these beautiful young boys really stood out to me because they would have been ranging from age five to maybe eight. And they couldn't, and you know, we were smiling at each other, waving at each other, but they couldn't communicate with me with language and they couldn't communicate with each other with language. And it really got me thinking about literacy and access to education in Australia in a way that I had never thought about it before. Um, you know, my grandparents, for example, on my dad's side, uh, migrated to Australia fleeing the war. And so when they arrived here, they didn't speak any English um, and they ingrained in my dad and my auntie and in turn into us, that education is really the key mm -hmm. to opportunity. So I had always been aware of that, um, but you know, even with that background, growing up in Sydney um, and going to a private school, I'd never really thought about the literacy problem in our own backyard um, in rural or regional areas of Australia, let alone in metropolitan areas yeah. of Australia. And so it was really through this trip um, and then coming back and wanting to do some research on my own, as well as picking the brains of um, some not-for-profit literacy organisations that I was volunteering at and doing some consulting work for as part of this Masters of Commerce that I really started to understand that we had these huge literacy problems in Australia. Um, and that in itself was horrifying, but was that moment for me where I went, well, why aren't we doing something more about this? And what would be a way to have an impact on literacy um, you know, that, that maybe I could get involved in. And initially I was thinking, you know, should I be trying to get a job at a not-for-profit or a charity that is working with literacy? Um, or is there a way that I could have a bigger impact? And so that was kind of that second piece. And then the third piece was that my dad, um, who had led a very successful corporate career, had decided that he wanted to write a novel, as many Australians do. And during that process, he got an agent quite quickly in the US and it was all, you know, going ahead. But he then met um, a raft of Australian authors in the Australian community who kind of said to him, this is not normal. In Australia, you have to have a literary agent to be seen by a publisher and none of the literary agents are taking on new authors. Um, so in Australia, as an Australian author, it's, you know, at this point in time, which is probably 2000 and 2007, it is virtually impossible for an unknown author writing fiction to get out there and be seen. And so that was my third piece, which was my light bulb moment. Yeah. And it was, you know, I never kind of thought that I would get to this moment, but it, it truly was these organic things all happening, which came together and said, well, is there a way to start a company that we could 
you know, as an overall philosophy, be thinking how can we do our part in investing in the future of Australians, especially with regard to literacy. Um, So can we, is there a way to take a risk on new authors so that we can nurture Mm -hmm next generation of writers um, take a risk on these authors that other publishers weren't able to do at the time Um, and is there a way to build into our business model um, that we would also be investing in not just the next generation of writers but also the next generation of readers Uh, and so it sounds quite simple uh, you know when you put it all together like that Um, but it took two years to really get an understanding of why publishers couldn't take a risk on certain authors, um, you know, and it took that long to think about what kind of different business models might work and why, and we have changed that over the years. Um, And it's taken 12 years to perfect talking about the company and how it's come here. So it kind of sounds like, you know, it's a nice idea and it all makes sense, Um, but it was not as simple as a overnight fix. I can only imagine, when you said you escaped war, what country were you escaping from? They were escaping from Poland. Poland. Oh, beautiful. Okay. The reason why I asked is because we escaped from Afghanistan. So I thought maybe there are, but no, different ends of the spectrum. <laughs> so, so you finish university, you go onto this trip. It teaches you about there's a literacy gap in Australia. And you, mm. I'm, I'm really interested the fact that you didn't go and work for a not-for-profit. And is that mm. because you said because my impact could have been greater because of these two things as my dad wanted to publish um i wanted to so your impact was just at a greater scale should you had you have started your own printing house is that what it was pretty much um i think it was it was a that there were you know i started to see this glimmer that a company could do more than just one thing and so i liked that idea that you know i i'd seen this void in the book publishing market and that there might be a way to use that um, to drive the overall purposes of, you know, literacy and writing culture in Australia. Um, But also I think that it was working, um, you know, in a consulting capacity alongside some of these not-for-profit charities, a few of which specialised in literacy, um, where I just realised how many rules and regulations there really are for charities and not-for-profits, and that this can, and, you know, they're there for a reason and they're they're important, but it, it certainly impacts your ability to be to do what you want to do and, and, and possibly to be a, a bit agile. Yeah. Um, so it was really that I just thought I could have far more impact running a for-profit business where then you're not bound by these regulations and I might be able to make a bigger impact and more change because what we do is we nurture new authors and build their brands over time, trying to make them, you know, big successful best-selling authors and award-winning authors. And we have a number on our, our list. Um, and then we fund charities and not-for-profits working in the literacy space and the books that we publish ourselves are books that kind of spark conversation or change. So, you know, I guess our business is very mission aligned in that all elements of our business speak to promoting and championing writing culture and literacy. And we do that, you know, in sort of a multifaceted way. Okay. So that's, that's, that's really great moving pieces there. So you only serve up and coming authors. So for example, person A wants to start writing or writing a book, they would then have a finished book and then come to you or they would come to you for the coaching of writing that book. At what point do they come? Uh, so, yeah, it's a great question. So for fiction, um, because fiction is very much 
about execution as well as it is idea. Mm. Uh, so for fiction, an author would come to us with a finished book, but we do provide a lot of sort of resources in terms of, um, you know, we fund a lot of writing programs. Uh, we recently just uh, funded Writing New South Wales, which is a state, the peak state-based writing organisation. Um, we funded their, uh, their FBI award-winning um, Boundless Festival program, which is a diverse voices program, and then much more recent, which was about six months ago, and then just last week, um, we made another donation to them of untied funding to get them through mm -hmm. this COVID period. So we do a lot with writers' festivals and writing programs that provide resources to new writers, and we often point writers who come to us um, to all of these various resources, but we don't uh, run them ourselves. But for fiction, an author would come to us with a finished manuscript, possibly having gone through some of those other channels. Um, for nonfiction, it's normally an expert writing on something. And so they might come to us with a pitch idea that we would workshop with them um, to work out how it might actually look. So it's, it's a bit of, bit of both. Okay. So once someone comes to you, so I'm going to talk about how you started the publishing house because I know mm. it's not just like that. It took a bit of time, just to say the least. <laughs> Well, in terms of your business, because what I'm very interested in is that you, you serve both social causes and you're a for profit, which I think is marriage mm. because it just works so well. How does that business model work? So if someone's listening and they're thinking, so how is it all working? So I know you fund the not-for-profits. So mm. I, I want to publish my book with you. I pay X amount of dollars to get it published. No, 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 no. no. Okay, okay, please explain yeah. to me. Yeah. So you're an author, you've written a book, you've put your blood, sweat and tears into it. You would come to us and say, here's a book. Um, our editors would read it uh, and, you know, they would, uh, that kind of gets filtered up through the organisation. So if they, they love the writing, they can see real potential. Then it gets taken to a team meeting, which would have our marketing and sales people in it, as well as our rights manager. And so you're getting a much broader spectrum of feedback, not just editorial. Uh, and we would say, yes, this is a book we love. This is the audience it's for. These are the sales channels that could go in. We're excited. Um, at that point, we would meet the author to make sure that we're all aligned and on the same page uh, because we, like many other businesses, have um, a nice guy rule or as some people would call it, a no asshole policy. Uh, and so we want to make sure that everyone we work with you know is definitely on the same page um, at that point we would offer the author a deal uh, and I mentioned before that we have played with different financial modeling and this is an example uh, so when we first started we started with a 50-50 profit share financial model which meant that the author did not put in any money themselves they put in their blood sweat and tears um, but it meant that we weren't paying a big advance up front we might be paying something nominal like 500 or a thousand dollars um, but then when the book broke even um, and that was just direct costs to the book so it's not our overheads it was literally just like the marketing the advertising campaign the printing costs um, you know if an author stayed at a hotel for a publicity tour just those costs when when the sales broke even with those costs then we split everything 50 50 with them going forward um, and that model uh, allowed us to take a risk on new authors, really. So it, it allowed us to get into this space that other publishers couldn't uh, because it meant that for new unknown authors, they were less risky because we weren't paying them an ongoing royalty while the book was still losing money. 
Um, and for, uh, but it meant that at the other end, they then had the potential to make much, much more money than they would under a typical royalty deal. Uh, and then for platform authors or, or, you know, like a nonfiction person with a big established audience, it appealed to them as well because they knew they had a big audience. And so it was a way for us to attract bigger talent, um, you know, someone well known, but who'd never written a book before, uh, because you know they could see the advantage of getting a bigger percent of profit uh, so it sort of worked at both ends of the scale uh, but then more recently um, in the last couple of years we've also introduced a much more traditional publishing financial model which is an advance up front which can range anywhere from like a thousand dollars to hundred thousand dollars um and then an ongoing royalty for every book sold so often what we will do uh with authors is that we'll lay out the two financial models and say this is what it would look like on each um and for most authors we you know we say what what works best for you because there are obviously pros and cons okay. of both okay of course so you've gone towards a traditional route and so in terms of the social aspect of it that's your donation of the profits that you make in pantera press and that's when it gets shipped to your literary um uh, charities is that correct yeah, exactly. So it is very separate to, it's not like we're taking this money away from authors, you know, it's in our best interest that, I mean, it's part of our purpose, really, that we want to be funding the next generation of writers. So we want them to be earning enough money, ideally, that they could quit their day job. And so, you know, for a book on a 50-50 model, we would be paying them their 50%. And then after that, using our own business money to fund you know, various programs or charities or not-for-profits. Um, and same with the traditional model, they would get paid their royalty and then it's our, you know, it's our business money that we use to fund these various things. On a scale of zero to 10, zero being not at all, 10 being perfect, how well does that structure of that business model, the latter form, how well does that align with you and the goals of the business and the impact you want to make? Mm. Um, I think that we have got to a point and I'm sure it will continue to evolve over the years as things change. Um, but we have at least right now got to a point where all of the things that we're doing really do align with our purpose and they allow us to, to be purposeful with what it is that we're doing. Um, you know, the only sort of additional point I would really make is that for us to increase our impact, we have to increase our profitability. So the more we can build the brands of our authors and the more that we can publish best-selling books or books that have a very long tail, the bigger our impact can be both in terms of investing in writers um, and new authors, as well as, um, you know, bringing more books to an audience that are on books that might encourage them to, you know, have different conversations or think about things a little bit differently or even enact change. And then, of course, obviously, on the philanthropic side of the business. So I guess it it's much more about incorporating it together. Uh, and part of what we saw businesses doing, you know, 10, 15 years ago was trying to do philanthropic things, but having them as this, like, separate arm of the business over here. So it's like, here's a business, you know, a bank or whatever, doing what they do here and then over here is a separate arm that's like we donate money to communities and you know um, we're doing good but not ingraining them together and I feel like our advantage has always been putting our purpose into all elements of our business. And just to, just to reinforce that and that's because your mission is to help literacy and therefore the funds that you drive towards are those who are 
charities that really lift literacy standards in Australia. Would that be correct? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so for example, um, we recently donated $150,000 to the Story Factory. Um, and so they're an organisation based out of Sydney at the moment. Um, they were set up in Redfern. Uh, and they're really a creative writing program. Um, well, they're really a program under the guise of a creative writing program. But what they do is they work from kids, I think, 7 to 17, particularly kids from marginalised and disadvantaged communities, and they empower these kids to find a voice, to have a voice. Um, they encourage critical thinking and self-worth. And so all these really important things and also are teaching literacy and, and comprehension. So all these things are really important to levelling the playing field uh, so that all kids from all backgrounds might be able to start from the same point in school systems, which we haven't yet achieved here in Australia. Um, and so that's an example of one of the organisations and what they do that we have um, funded. I love that. So if you can just give me some background, please, Ali. So to start a publishing house, if mm. someone's thinking about doing something as, as big as that, what is step one, what's step two? I know you can't give us all the details, but, but what's the overall bird's eye view of what happens in the process taking us through the steps. Yeah, um, and I mean, I guess all of these steps are steps that we took to start a publishing business, but they're not just applicable to publishing, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, the first piece was having an idea um, that I was excited about. Uh, and, you know, at, over the years, that ha it's become apparent how important that actually is. And there was some research I saw a while ago, uh, and I can't remember where it was from it was uh, it, I think it was a study done out of Harvard um, but it was basically that to kind of six like the recipe for success is that you have to uh, be good at what you do um, others have to see value in what it is that you do and you need to love what it is that you do and that third piece is actually so critical to your ongoing success because if you think about it if you're good at what you do and people value what you do but you don't love it then you will never be able to compete with the other person at your firm or, or whatever it is that has all three of those things because just that, that love and that passion will always make them go that step further that you didn't even know was possible. So I really think that having an idea and a thought that you're passionate about is just so important. Um, the second step for us was research. Um, so really understanding, you know, what we thought the problem was and why. Uh, and in our case, that was talking to publishers, authors, designers, printers, distributors, sales forces, publicists, etc., to get a sense um, of why uh, publishers at the time weren't able to take a risk on new Australian authors. Uh, and it came through to you literally ring them up and say, hi, look, I'm starting a publishing house. Can you tell me about you know, the, the PR side of things, the sales side, and you just have that kind of a conversation? Is that what you'd be doing? Yeah. So we cold called a few people, cold emailed a few people, um, but also had introductions to a few people. So we had a friend whose friend owned a bookshop in Linfield and we reached out to the bookseller early on and said, would you be happy to have a chat? And then he introduced us to other people. So we certainly used people on the periphery that had connections to random people within the, net, within the, um, within the industry, but a huge amount of it was cold calling. Um, and we really didn't have any knockbacks. You know, we contacted publishers, um, the multinational publishers based here in Australia and had meetings with most of them and a big chunk of the literary agents. And all of them were just, you know, 
I mean, it is a weird industry. It's quite supportive um, and collegiate, even though it's competitive. Um, but I think most people were just excited to hear that maybe someone would be focusing purely at the time. Obviously, we've kind of evolved, but in the start, focusing purely on new Australian voices. Um, so, yeah, so research and just reaching out to people cold and talking to them was kind of our next step. Um, and then thinking out of the box and working out if we were going to get into this space, um, is there a different business model or financial model that would help us get there? Um, so there was a lot of spreadsheeting work. Um, one thing we didn't do, which I deeply regret, is that we didn't have anyone with operational publishing experience helping or advising us early on. Um, so I think that we were so focused on the fact that Pantera Press was going to be different and that we wanted to get rid of this, this is how you do things mentality, that we didn't want to work closely with anyone from within the industry to start. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually think that we would have succeeded and grown and reached our milestones much faster. Uh, and now we, of course, have people in the business who have great industry experience. But I think we would have reached that faster if actually we'd had someone with a bit of industry know-how at the beginning but who loved what we were doing and understood why it needed to be different mm -hmm. okay well that's brilliant like that's fantastic and you've been doing this now for 12 years yes yep 12 years wow that's that's huge so how did how did and i love about that how did you get on boards and committees because that's a question that i get frequently about how did you get on boards and how do you get selected and what's the process and so what was your journey on getting on boards yeah um so i mean riding new south wales is probably the main one uh and i think that you know it really just is having a network and that's not to you know i don't mean that in the way of like you have to go out to these networking events where you're you know in an awkward room with people um, but it was more taking the time to get to know the people around me and so as someone who was very new to our industry um, I didn't have the long-standing relationships that many other people in the industry did because people chop and change mm. publishing houses all the time um, and so it was you know at some of these just regular industry events that I would take the time to really get to know the people who were around me because I didn't know who was who, I didn't know who was related to what. Um, and the Writing New South Wales one really came about because someone who worked for the Australian Booksellers Association um, was sitting next to me at an industry event. Um, and most people at that event, I would say, would have been running around trying to meet the famous authors and chatting up the publishers. But I was just sitting next to this lovely woman, Dee, um, from the Australian Publishers Association um, and then she you know she, she was hearing about our story and how we got started um, but also about the philanthropic work that we were doing and she said well actually you know I've I've been on the board of writing New South Wales who I wasn't completely familiar with at the time um, she said I've been on the board for some time and we're really looking for someone who has expertise in fundraising and, and you know philanthropic networks um, but also who is sort of doing some innovative things and so that's how that conversation really came about and through that we kept talking for about six months and then you know she invited me to come and meet some of the uh, other board members and I, I've now been on the board for years so I don't know what year I started but I would say it's at least five oh, wow. okay. seven years so I've been on the board for a while um, but that one was certainly 
you know, just taking the time to really explain to people what I was doing and why and, and do that within a network of people or build a network of people within the business. Um, did that help but you also, that help your business being on that board? Would it take away from your time? It was just a, a give, a, a heartfelt give being on the board. Uh, it's probably a combination. I think it, I think being on a board can give you more credibility. It certainly does take away from your day-to-day life. Um, so I wouldn't recommend, or at least it wouldn't have worked for me to do that in our first few early years. I really needed to focus on the business and get it up and running. Um, but you know as we kind of got through that window, um, being on a board definitely adds credibility. It gave, uh, you know, access to different people through that network, um, which, you know, have proven useful, you know, both ways, me to them and them to me. Um, And yeah, so I think it really is a combination that, it, it has been useful in many ways, but it also it needs to be the right board. And if someone is begging you to be on a board, um, and obviously I've been approached by a number of organisations since, I think if someone is begging you to be on a board, um, it might be because you're the perfect fit or it might be because something is wrong. So I would much rather it be the other way where I'm begging someone to be part of their board or their advisory committee rather than them begging me actually. Um, And I guess in the not-for-profit world, uh, you know, it's also important to really make sure uh, that, you know, you have a understanding of how businesses run because, you know, you're still liable as a director. So it's important that the company is solvent and, you know, all of those sorts of things. So having a, you don't need to have done a company director's course, although it can help, but having that general understanding of, um, you know, balance sheets and, you know, that sort of top line financial stuff is, is quite important. What's your role in Pantera Press? Like what's, what role do you play? Cause there's so many moving pieces. Mm. So I'm kind of, now I'm really the overseer of everything. When we first started, we were a two-man show. So I was the doer of everything, mm-hmm. um, which is actually very nice in a way because you understand how things happen, how long they should take, how everything connects with each other. Um, and that's something that you don't really have access to in you know larger organizations Uh, that's not to say that it wasn't difficult and I had to learn skills on the fly Um, Mm -hmm. like I taught myself how to use photoshop because I did a bunch of our book covers early on Um, not having a graphic design background at all Um, you know I did a lot of the structural editorial work um, in the beginning but always used freelancers to do the copy edits which are sort of the very small um, and grammatical and formatting edits Uh, and we had a freelance publicist from day one but other than that everything was really me in those early years and now our team has grown substantially Um, but it actually really helps from a management point of view to understand what each role entails and how it all fits together um, because you just have this, you know, overall piece. But at the moment, my role is much more um, just overseeing how all the parts come together, a lot of people management, um, and obviously uh, working a lot with our philanthropic investments to make sure that they can go the extra mile and spending a lot of time without authors as well because that's that's important okay all right is it hard because once you grow how many people now in the organization 
so we've got, I mean, it's not huge. Book publishing is not huge in Australia. We've got 14 people in our head office mm -hmm. in Sydney. Um, and then we share a sales force and distribution team with another publishing company okay. called Bloomsbury. Was, was it hard letting go of control and hiring people to come in? And because you've got a standard that you do yeah. at this level. And sometimes when you give that to someone else, they cannot always perform it to that level because it's... Mm. Was there a little bit of a friction for you personally? Yes, 100%. Um, and you know what? I can't tell you um, if it was 100% me um, or if there were sort of other factors involved. So when we started to grow, um, you know, I definitely was sort of trying to micromanage things that were happening and I wasn't letting go. And I remember one employee who wasn't with us for a huge amount of time said something like, you need to let go and trust us that we could do it. Um, but the problem was that that person consistently didn't do the things that needed to be done. Um, so there were sort of big projects that we had um, that, you know, either weren't up to standard or weren't completed. And so I was really torn in those early years is this me not letting someone do something their way? Um, is it me not being able to let go? Or is there a bigger problem? Mm. And subs since then, we've hired many new people and our team at the moment is fantastic. And, you know, that trust, having that trust with your team is so incredibly important. And there is not anything now that I wouldn't pass on to someone and say, you know, what do you think? Or can you do this? Or can you handle this? And I completely trust that they would do it. And it might be in their way, not my way, but I trust that it will be done properly into the right standard. And I don't know if that is because these people are, you know, if it's just because these people are really fantastic and we've spent a long time sort of wooing the right people, or if it's because over time I've also let go. So I don't know if it's a combination or if it's the person, but I will say that having like a go-to person or people that you trust who, you know, deliver when they say they'll deliver um, mm -hmm. is critical to building a team. Yes, yes. And, and just peace of mind for you to sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what it comes down to. So if, if you, I mean, you've done a lot in terms of your work and where you've come to, have you had mentors supporting you along the way? Yes and no. Um, and, you know, the mentorship question, I always think, uh, you know, I get that a lot of people asking, how did you find a mentor? Who are your mentors? Um, and I certainly had people within my industry that I looked up to and got support from. Um, but it wasn't until I went to Harvard that I actually realised how important having a non-industry network was. Um, so I went to Harvard Business School only a few years ago. And in that program, you're paired with eight other people um, that are basically your living group. So you live together for your time on campus. Oh, um, and you like like in a, in, a, in one dormitory or something? One well, no, like you have your. I mean, the 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 dorms basically feel like fancy hotel suites. Oh, okay. um, and so you have your own room, your own bathroom. Oh, um, but then. <laughs> yeah, but then all of the, I mean, it feels like a hotel. You have this, this room with, a, you know, a bed, a desk, a computer, a TV, a chair and a bath, a big bathroom and a wardrobe. And then you go out into the hallway and it feels like a hotel. Um, and then there's a conference room. Um, and that's kind of the shared room that you use with these other people and all their rooms come off into that hallway. So it feels much more like a hotel than a, wow. you know, anything else. Um, 
but you're paired with these eight different people and you do all of your projects together. Um, you do all your studying together. And in my group, um, you know, we had people from all over the world. So, you know, who'd either worked or lived in all kinds of different countries. Um, you know, we only had two Americans in the group. Everyone else was from um, all over. Um, so we had different first languages, different cultural experiences, different, different ethnicities and very different industries. None of us were in the same industry. And we, you know, had sort of these case uh, assignments where we had to present a problem within, within our own organization and get advice from the people in our group. And I thought to myself, what are these people going to be able to tell me? Like none of them understand book publishing. None of them then understand the further intricacies of book publishing in Australia and the economy in Australia. You know, they don't understand that Amazon is not a big all service company here, for example, what is it that they can tell me? You know, they have backgrounds in finance and marketing and banking and technology and whatever. Um, and what I quickly discovered is that actually the best way to solve a problem and to get rid of that, this is how we do things mentality is to get advice from smart people who, you know, don't have your background and who can bring a different lens to the conversation. Um, so I guess it really is about diversity of thought mm -hmm. and how important that actually is. And so what I thought about when I got back home is great. I have these wonderful people as now friends and a network for life. Um, but what is it that I'm actually missing? And I've done this exercise with a few friends now as well, where you kind of look at who are the people, um, whether you trusted peers or official mentors that you have, um, you know, and what are the gaps? You know, is there someone, and it doesn't have to be formal, it could just be, is there someone who you could suggest having a coffee with once a year as a catch up to pick their brain? But is there someone in your industry, someone outside of your industry, someone who's a different gender, someone who's got a different ethnicity, someone who, you know, is really trusted, but is from a totally different field? And then how can you kind of put all of that together? Um, so while I think, you know, having a mentor, um, and, and different kinds of mentors can be important. I think equally actually looking within your own network and reaching out to people you kind of have a connection with, but not really, and acknowledging that they don't need to be in your industry. They just kind of need to be smart people that you can bounce ideas off uh, is, has been hugely beneficial for my journey anyway. And why did you, what, what degree did you study at Harvard? So I did their program for leadership development, which is basically their executive MBA program, but because they're Harvard, they give it a fancy name. Oh. Was it worth it? If someone was thinking of doing that, would you recommend it? Absolutely. Um, I would 100% recommend it. I wouldn't recommend it right now during COVID because I think that, um, you know, the, the a real benefit that came from it was the in-person connection that you made with yeah. your peers while you were there. And so I had been thinking going into it that, um, you know, that it would be really tough learning wise, you know, like I hadn't been at school for ages. This was going to be really challenging. Could I stack up with the other people there? Um, but you know, that that would be really valuable um, and that, you know, you had this great caliber of teachers, which you do, but actually the most valuable thing was meeting the other participants who were there and learning from each other. And the workload is not what you sort of expect. You know, they do a, um, they do a case study method of teaching. So it's much more looking at, you know, specific organizations and maybe a big failure they had or a big thing that happened and then analyzing 
what happened and why. And then you get to learn from the experiences of everyone else in the room as well. Um, so it's, you know, it is very valuable. Um, there are scholarships available. Uh, but, you know, I think it's well, well worth it. And because it's an executive program, there is the assumption that every single person is working full time. Mm -hmm. um, and so instead of being over there for six months or 18 months, you go over in short stints. So you do a bunch of stuff online for a semester and then you go over for three like really intensive weeks where you're on campus and you should be on annual leave and you're just, you know, in class and studying 24-7. Then you come back home and then you go over again. But it's very worthwhile. Okay, thank you for that. that. That's really good to know because, and that's what I've been told by anyone, the only reason why you go to somewhere like Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge mm. is the contacts that you build, not necessarily yeah. for the book education, but the contacts that you build and you're just reaffirming that. That's brilliant. Now, in terms of your, you went on a philanthropy study tour. What's a philanthropy study tour? So it was organised by Philanthropy Australia. It's, I think it's probably a bit different today than when it first started. Um, but they introduced this new program, uh, I guess, in 2012 um, called the New Den Program. Uh, and the idea is that they really wanted to find uh, social people that were involved in social enterprise or social entrepreneurs and then more traditional uh, foundational people. Um, so, you know, funders or people who were part of a family foundation or something like that um, mm -hmm. to get together and to go overseas and meet with some of the leading uh, social purpose mm -hmm. and foundations overseas to really understand what they were doing and then to maybe learn from that and ideally bring some of those things back here and scale them in a different way. Wow. Um, and so it was quite competitive very early on. They picked sort of the top 20 leaders in that space um, of which I was chosen. And so the first trip was to the US and we got to meet um, you know, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, we got to go there and meet them. So we met some very, wow. you know, impressive people mm -hmm. doing amazing things. And then I was chosen again, or I applied, it was chosen again two years later, which was the second study tour they ever did, which was to the UK and parts of Europe. Um, and there we met with organisations like Cadbury Chocolate. And so, you know, these are really big organisations that had philanthropic arms or had social purpose, you know, type things. Um, and so there were a lot of learnings in all of those things that kind of we brought back here. Um, and for me, the biggest change from that was that it, uh, I guess, on a technical side of things made me rethink how we give money to the charities that we work with. Um, so what happened when I came back is that we set up the official Pantera Press Foundation. So before that, we just had money in our bank account. And then we would say to a charity, we want to fund this project, here's your money. Um, but what we realized is that if we put it into a foundation, which is just like a special bank account basically mm -hmm. it means that when you put the money into it you can't take the money back out of it unless it's going to a charity or not-for-profit mm -hmm. that is registered um, but it also means that you get better tax breaks and you know all that kind of stuff on the money in there because it can only be used for that yeah. purpose mm -hmm. um, and you can also run investments from within it so it means that we can have mission aligned investments that are proper investments, like you might have an investment portfolio, but they sit within the foundation. So any money that goes in there, these investments can generate more money um, with great tax breaks so that we can build that fund even when we're not putting money into it. It can keep growing so that we can have more impact with the charities that we donate to. 
that's a huge learning. I mean, that's a huge, that's a benefit you derive from that philanthropy study tour. I guess that's so cool. That's very worthwhile. But I'm really impressed. I mean, that's all extremely impressive. But being named Australia's 100 most influential women by Westpac and the Australian Financial Review, how do people find, like, is that something, for someone that's listening, because that obviously speaks volumes about your work. It gives volume, it gives you a platform to make a greater impact. So for someone that's listening, if they want to be nominated for these awards, is it something that somebody nominates you or can you nominate yourself? For most of these things, I think that, it, I think it can go both ways. Um, so I was originally nominated by someone else for the 100 Women of Influence. Um, I don't know if that process has changed because when I was, uh, when I was named, it was a combination of Westpac and the AFR together. Uh, and now I think that it's just Westpac. Um, so I don't know if that process has changed, but you can absolutely nominate yourself. Um, and I, I think, I imagine they get lots and lots of nominations each year. They have a judging panel. They then select the top, uh, you know, I think one, maybe 200, and then they do really in-depth interviews, um, or it might even be 500. And then they, they, they do their shortlist. And, um, you know, it's a really, it was a really interesting process, but I think all of these things, you know, it's great to be recognized for the work that you're doing, but all of these things also just help your credibility when you're trying to do other stuff. So, you know, even if we're trying to talk to a high profile author, um, you know, these are the kinds of things that help you get a foot in the door uh, because it gives you more credibility. So I, th I do think that even though it takes time, it is worthwhile to look at um, and pursue the various awards. That one doesn't really come with, you know, a big cash prize or anything, but there are other awards that do. And that can also be really useful, particularly when you're starting early on and need some cash to help build the business. It's a great way to do that if you've got a really solid business plan and idea. Do you ever play with grants, applying for grants to really build up the business? We haven't previously, but it's funny you mentioned that because we are looking um, at one right now, which is really just for a book that, um, would otherwise be commercially unviable. Um, so, you know, the, the cost it would take to put it together um, and the amount of sales we would likely get from it mean that on a commercial basis, it wouldn't be worth us doing. Uh, but it's a really important book. It's a collection of stories written by uh, authors of colour in Australia. Um, and it deals with some, uh, you know, important, many important issues. And so it's the kind of book we would really like to publish and fund um, and so with the editor who has presented sort of the concept to us um, we're helping well we're really helping them apply for a grant which would help fund like it might help pay more money for some of the authors um, and it might help with some of the print costs so then you know we wouldn't be covering as much of the cost base but could find a way to do a really meaningful book um, that you know, otherwise wouldn't be possible. Love it. At any point, um, Ali, uh, do you suffer from self-doubt? Like, do you, starting your own thing and not having someone constantly tell you what to do, what's a success formula? Because once you finish school, there is a certain path that if you follow this path, you'll earn X amount of dollars and may get to this point in this title, executive so-and-so or doctor so-and-so. But doing your own thing, turning a passion into a profession in your own way, do mm. you, I was speaking to someone this morning and I, that's 
question that they were talking about, they use running to just settle their thoughts. Do you have yeah. some, do you suffer from self-doubt? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone suffers from self-doubt. <laughs> anyone who says that they don't um, probably isn't doing something exciting enough or, or rewarding enough. That's very true. In your business, do you kind of think, am I in over my head? Did I just do the wrong thing? Like, am I like, am I even good enough? Like, kind of, should I even approach that author? Like, could we even give them? Like, do you have those thoughts? Yeah, all the time. And, you know, it's probably less about approaching people, but more about the actual running of the organization. Mm. Um, you know, like, how do you attract the right staff? How do you keep them? Are we doing things in the right way? Who am I to put certain policies in place? Um, you know, what's, you know, I don't have an experience or a background in HR. Who am I to say we need to do things this way or that way? Um, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. And, you know, also, um, you know, my, I guess, involvement in the company has first and foremost always been from a business strategy point of view rather than a creative point of view. And so we have some really impressive people, you know, our, our publisher or our two publishers in the business um, who really understand, you know, writing and books and they're amazing. Um, but, you know, in our early days before we had them, I was like, I don't have this creative knowledge, you know, how do I compare to these other people? And then even when they did join, I was sort of like, I'm in charge. I should know more than they do. Whereas in actual fact, no, get the smart people in and get out of their way. And, you know, that's a really great way to approach it. Um, so I certainly feel like an imposter. And I think, as I said before, it's natural for people to feel that way. Um, I don't know how, how you really get around it. Um, for me, it's more, um, you know, I don't have a ritual like the person you mentioned. I don't go running. Um, but, you know, I do have uh, several groups of people that I've built up that I have access to. One is through Harvard. Um, another is through an organization I joined called the Entrepreneurs Organization, um, which is a global network, but we have a Sydney chapter. Um, and then I have a group of sort of friends in different business areas and we just shoot the breeze with each other. So I think, you know, maybe it doesn't calm those fears, but it helps me think practically about issues. If I'm thinking, why on earth am I implementing you know, a wellness day into the business, is this the right thing to do? I can shoot a message to people saying, or even with COVID, you know, we, we work, we were very early to close our offices. We closed our offices and had everyone working from home about two weeks before all the major organizations sent people home. Um, and, you know, at the time I was sort of like, what is the risk? You know, are other people putting, uh, you know, contingency plans in place, what do they involve, how are you setting people up from home? Um, and that was one of those moments which is like, hold on, you know, big companies um, like the major banks and consulting firms and whatever, no one is sending anyone home. Maybe yeah. we're overreacting and I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, being too uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, it turned out we were on, you know, we were on the right path. But, you know, we may not have been. It equally could have gone the other way where no one did that and we did. But having these networks of people where I can at least reach out and say, is anyone else doing a contingency plan? Like, what are you including in it? What am I missing? Um, and getting these kind of sense checks that I have found is very useful. Um, and more often than not, it sparks other people to think about what they're not thinking about and vice versa. So you get this kind of nice cyclical, you know, um, thing around it. Yeah. Last question. Lovely, Ellie. 
And that is, what is your, because you, what you've done is a very heartfelt business structure. Mm. One that really pulls at your heartstrings that has a bigger mission than just an individual profit margin. My question is, what's your greatest vision for what you want Pantera Press to be or have the kind of impact that it should have in your vision? Yeah, I mean, it is a great question. And it's, I mean, the answer is sort of how long is a piece of string? Um, at the end of the day, um, as you mentioned, we're a leading and very fast growing publishing business here in Australia. Um, we have tentatively set up distribution networks in the US. Uh, but my desire is, of course, that we might have a much more global imprint. Um, and really just that we can publish the kinds of books that excite us um, and really will matter, you know, the sorts of books that might have an impact um, on people. And that's not to say that they all need to be serious. You know, we have some fantastic fiction books in our list um, that when you read them, you're kind of like, what a great story, this is really engaging. Um, but there just might be a little bit of social commentary you know, underlying them. So we, you know, earlier this year, we published a book from Rebecca Freeborn called The Girl She Was. Um, and it definitely, you know, it's just a really engaging story, um, but it definitely kind of speaks to the Me Too movement um, and, and you know, uh, power discrepancies and, you know, these kinds of themes that have been really important culturally in Australia in the last few years. Um, similarly, we published a book called, Kim, uh, called Torched by Kimberly Starr. Um, and that's also a fiction book. It's our lead fiction title. It's beautifully written. Um, it's kind of a, a bit of a, you know, mystery um, type book, but it really is more about uh, community um, and also the bushfires and the author's lived experience through the Black Friday Victorian fires years ago and how that can kind of play into and so there's that that climate reference that plays really into a wonderful story so if you're just looking for a great story you'd be like what a great book but then when you think about it deeper you're sort of like oh okay wow I've connected with it so I guess when I'm talking about books that matter it doesn't have to be you know here is a book on race yeah. it, it can be more subtle as well as in your face um, so doing, you know, really meaningful books that speak to our mission, more of them, um, and just being much more profitable so that we can have a bigger impact, um, you know, on writing and literacy as a whole. And I would ideally love to see Australia in my lifetime um, have a future generation where every child um, starts from an equal position when they get to school. Wow. Uh, because that's our biggest problem right now is that so many projects and programs are reactive, not proactive. So they're, they're helping kids later in life catch up. And we don't want catch up programs. We want, you know, we just want everyone to have an equal opportunity. So if we can contribute to that in a meaningful way, then job well done, you wow. know? <laughs> Well, Australia is in a much better place with you being in it, Ali, and your contribution. So thank you for all that you do. That's just brilliant. Thank you. Where can everyone find out more about Pantera Press? So you can go to our website, panterapress.com, um, but all of our books are available from all of the major book retailers. So Booktopia, the chains like Dimmix, Big W, Kmart, Target, your local bookshop, but also as eBooks um, and audiobooks as well. So if you're just looking at wherever good books are found, you can find our authors there. And we have some really wonderful um, 
authors uh, and some really fantastic books that are upcoming now as well. And I should mention one thing, which is that the University of Sussex released a study which showed that reading helps reduce stress by 68%. And as little... Yeah, and as little as reading six minutes a day can reduce your stress by up to two thirds. So it's also, you know, for your overall health. Fantastic. Wow. Well, that just gives me more time to read then. <laughs> that's, exactly. that's absolutely unbelievable statistics. That is unbelievable. Because it's not, you know, in a little thing called a, a, a tablet. It's just, mm. you know what I mean? Like if it was a tablet, we'd all be taking it. If it was a exactly. virus, but because it requires a little bit of effort, six minutes a day can make a big difference. That's. Yeah, and six minutes is nothing. You know, open up a great book, immerse yourself for six minutes, and I mean, ideally longer, but six minutes makes a difference. <laughs> touche, touche. Ali, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You've been just a wealth of information for sharing your journey, your insights, the whole the whole nine yards of what you've been up to from Harvard to the philanthropy study tours from how you started up. It's just been a, such a great revelation. So thank you for sharing all of that. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'll see you on the very next episode. God bless. <laughs>